podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Brought to you by Infinity Greens, health-enhancing superfoods that I use and have been great for, for the health benefits I feel and I see every day. Plant-based, high-quality protein, essential vitamins and minerals that make a real difference in our health. It is my joy to introduce you to your new best friend, infinitygreens.com. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm having a conversation with Reverend Mark Basden about change. 12 Core Concepts to Emotional and Relational Awareness. Reverend Mark Basden is a minister and therapist who lives with his family in Alaska. He says that the services he provides to his patients, family, and the team are a vocation and a calling in his life. He believes that health providers are not change agents or are not there to change anyone, but rather to provide an environment for the change that the people want to make. As a minister and therapist, Reverend Mark has seen many individuals, families, communities, agencies, and churches struggle with emotional and relational distress and addictions. He serves people no matter where they are and where they are at. Through his calling, Reverend Mark has been able to work with institutions, hospitals, community centers, native villages and reservations, schools, and in front rooms. Here is the interview with Reverend Mark. Welcome, Reverend Mark Basden, and thank you for having a well-being conversation with me today. In your own words, who is Mark Basden? A very simple man that has a calling to serve people wherever they're at and wherever they wish to go in the change of their life and wellness. Great. Thank you. We spend too much time and waste too much energy in pointless attempts to change what we cannot change. This is a major cause of frustration and other forms of anger. The rational evidence for determining what we can't change and what we cannot change is overwhelming. However, our behavior often tries to disobey this reason. We cannot change the past, our history, 
the laws of physics, the weather, human nature, personality traits, another person's beliefs or thoughts. We cannot change human needs, sexual preferences, our innate talents, and the things we do not acknowledge. I read this on the website emotionalcompetency.com. In this episode, we might be able to acknowledge some of the things we don't know that is possible to change. Perhaps what we don't know about ourselves that we can change is precisely the obstacle to our well-being. Reverend Mark, is this what you had in mind when you created the 12 core concepts for emotional and relational distress and trauma? In many ways, yes. The 12 core concepts were originally designed in working with people with addictions. And I took them and developed them into more everyday life, a sense of reality, if you will. And I see that 90% of the frustrations, as you mentioned, that people go through are nothing more than emotional or relational distress in their lives and many of the traumas they create themselves. Why should we consider the 12 core concepts as the antidote to emotional and relational stress and trauma? It gives us a place to start from. It challenges the perceptions of what we believe about ourselves and how we affect the world that we live that we work, that we have lovers, have wives, have husbands, have children in. What we do in our lives and how we do it impacts everything that we touch by just our presence. Yes, it makes so much sense to me. Why is changing ourselves at this level so hard, so difficult? Because it's asking humanity an individual, a group, a family, to look within themselves when we live in a culture that very simply would rather have us stay stuck living an external life when life starts inside of ourselves. So in a way, you're saying that it's, it's easier to sort of adapt or stay where we are mm-hmm. to change, right? Change causes distress for a lot of my clients and patients, causes pain. But pain is that part of the healing process where change occurs. I cannot change anybody. You cannot change anybody. But we can create an environment where the change that people wish to make can happen. In a way, you're saying that we should create that space. It's our responsibility to sort of uh, help other people to change. Yes. It could be just in your presence. For example, I have been called to a hospital or I've been called to an accident scene or where a suicide has been completed. And sometimes there is nothing to say. And sometimes I sit next to the person or I sit across the room. And just that aspect of being there is more therapeutic than anything I could do coming alongside and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. If there's anything you need, that's not what they need to hear at that time. They need to know they're supported, that they have care. 
They have love. And it doesn't always mean with words. Right. Oh, that's a really beautiful way of explaining that. Like support. I like support. The idea that we are here to support one another. Exactly. Yeah. Not really trying to change, right, people, but to support them when they need us. Right. How many times have you heard people say, well, you ought to change this or you ought to change that or you shouldn't be feeling that way? Excuse me, you're not that person. That's putting a judgment on them. Right. That's wonderful. And we do it thinking we're helping when we're not. Yes, right. Uh, A lot of times we believe we are helping. Let's explore each concept and its message. Concept one. Concentrate on your own self-respect, focus on winning approval for practical purposes, and on loving rather than on being loved. I cannot really do what not only the Bible says, but I cannot love my wife unless I have the same balance of love for myself. If I am not willing to put myself in another person's shoes then and not able to do that for myself, then I am not as effective or useful in providing whatever I am being called to provide at that moment in time. For practical purposes, it is hard to do anything if you have it with another person unless you, in a sense, have the same attitude within yourself. Explain to me self-love, because a lot of people might misinterpret or sort of Mm -hmm. think that selfishness or narcissism is sort of a self-love idea or concept that they can integrate in their lives. Can you explain self-love? Self-love is focused on the internal. The number of people that I have worked with over the years aren't even comfortable in their own skin. They don't even feel good about themselves. For example, I have many clients that I've worked with over the years that believe down deep in your soul, if you will, nothing I do will ever be good enough for myself or anybody else. With that type of attitude, there is the tendency for people to not think of themselves and the things they need, but they'll think of everybody else. They'll do things for other people that they wouldn't do for themselves. They won't even listen to themselves and their own internal advice and say, no, this is not good for me. I shouldn't do it. But they go ahead and do it anyway. Self-love means nothing more than you're comfortable with yourself in a variety of different situations that you live in. Yes, which in a way means um, knowing oneself, self-knowledge, self-examination. Right, Right. self-concept, self-appreciation. Being grateful that you have the skills and the tools and the thoughts and the skills to not only help yourself, but help others at the same time. Just by being. I like the concept of self-compassion because that means we are more in tune with our own weaknesses so we can sort of connect with others better in a less deluded way and do more and be more. Concept two, people's poor behaviors do not make them horrible individuals. 
our society looks at people's behaviors as the deciding factor as to who they are, what they are, what consequences they should get. We're too much of behavioralistic oriented society. We also tend to clump people together by labels because of their behavior. And behavior for me and many other thinkers is the manifestation of what's going on inside of somebody. So if a person is confused, is scared, is uncertain about things, just doesn't know which way to turn, has no concept of self, their behavior is going to show the same thing. Many attitudes and behaviors, for example, in domestic violence situations, in crimes, are not based on just the behavior, but what is driving that behavior. So it's a small, simple mathematical equation in some respects. A person's attitude about themselves and how they interact with the world around them, plus motivation, the drive to do something, even though it's against everything they may believe or could have believed earlier in their years, equals is shown by their behavior. I think it comes down to some very basic, simple things that have been shown me, I've worked with in myself, of four critical aspects of being a part of humanity. And that is safety. Am I a safe person? Do I present a safe person for people to open up to, to share with? Do I accept them as who they are, where they're at? in that moment in time, no matter what they've done in their history or their past, you mentioned that you cannot go back and change the past. Yes, I can't change a person that has been addicted like myself. I cannot change a person that is a rapist or a murderer or a sex offender or a burglar or a child beater or whatever, or has been divorced four times. I cannot change any of that. But I cannot accept that person as they are today with their thoughts, feelings, and beliefs without question. Can I be a person they can connect with? Connection basically means a belief or a thought process of where do I fit in? How do I fit in? Where do I belong? The last part is validation. Can I validate them as a person, can I say thank you for sharing that with me and still not agree where they've been, what they're saying, but at least they were willing to share it. Yes. Those four keys are important. People, other clinicians have asked me, how can you go into that prison and work with those folks? Well, my underlying belief is that every human, no matter who they are, as value and worth, whether they see it in themselves or not. Promoting that and helping them to understand that they can provide themselves the permission to get well, or as my line is, to heal, to grow, and to recover. You know, there are so many stories of people like that, youth, you know, children, families that have come back together and stayed together multiple different cultures. That's what it takes. And that's how you do not look at their behavior, but you look at the person. 
Yes, coming from that place of compassion. I really like this concept of not judging or judging less. The pain that a person feels, we are live in a society that wants to teach us to get rid of pain. There are so many over-the-counter drugs. There are so many narcotic drugs to alleviate pain. But emotional pain, relational pain, self-pain is something that humans want to make others feel. And this is an odd concept, but people that are in pain themselves want others to have feel the same kind of pain so they feel that everything is balanced. Yeah, I heard this from a um, psychologist recently. She said, hurt people hurt people. True. It's so true. So I see what you're saying. We should be in touch with our own pain, understand the pain instead of trying to numb it, right? We have physical pain in our lives from whatever. And what that tells us and what was created in us by God for that is that says there's something not okay with the body. There's something injured. There's something wrong. Things aren't working well. So pain is actually a positive, but we see, we're taught to see it as a negative. Pain lessens as we begin to heal and get well. And pain only comes back when we create a situation and give it permission to. Yes, uh, the permission part. It's interesting. I have been sort of exploring the topic of empathy and empaths mm -hmm. and empathetic yeah. people where uh, these kind of people are overly sensitive and yes. they sort of absorb the pain of others, you know, emotionally. And then they're distressed and, and they're in pain right. then too. And that becomes right. anger and resentment and aggression. Yes. So now I think that being empathetic, it's not healthy. It can be unhealthy. It's when somebody lives in that framework all the time. They have a tendency not to let go. Over time, people like that will begin to see that everybody has a need for them to take things away from them. But they don't know how to put on their, if you will, Teflon suit. So it slides off of them. Right. So their view of what they're really there for and how to do it in a way that doesn't hurt themselves is skewed. Yeah. You will find people that do everything for everybody else. They never stop. Yeah. They're always constantly on the go because they have to do this. And they use this language of have to, need to. If nobody else does it, it won't get done. Yeah. And it's more of control of the external world and others than it is dealing with themselves and their own issues. Concept three, uh, you wrote, try to change or control bad conditions so they become more satisfactory. If that mm -hmm. it's not possible, it is better to accept them for the time being and gracefully integrate their existence. There's two parts to that. It is both yes and no at the same time. We use in a lot of treatment and in recovery, we, I use and others use the serenity prayer. Yeah. It is a matter of perception. We live in a society that we're going 100 miles an hour. 
And when we do that, we miss some very important things. Mm -hmm. If we would slow down and ask ourselves simple questions like, what am I seeing here right now? What is the best thing for me to do in this situation? In other words, deal more with the here and now, what's in front of you, rather than the whole people would not get themselves into a lot of the situations or poor conditions that they do. It seems to me that we are addicted to thinking. We think too much. And, yes. and that's hard, isn't it? To concentrate in this moment when we are constantly giving attention to every thought that pops up. What is the direction of the thinking is another part of that. If you're always constantly worrying about everybody else and what everybody else is going to do, where do you go? You get lost because the direction of your thinking is outward and not inward about you. How can I do better? Most people use a lot of self-negatives. They live in shame and guilt. Now, the definitions have changed over the years, but bottom line, basic definitions of the American English word guilt is I have done something bad. I have broke a rule. I have broke a law. I just, dad told me not to throw the baseball in the house and I just broke our sliding door. I did something bad. Shame though is in the internalized aspect of that, that I am a bad person because of what I've done, which is a lot of what our legal system Our court system, control issues in domestic violence situations in relationships are based on. Mm, relationships as well, right? Because you have a relationship with everything in the world. Whether you touch it or not, you still have a relationship because you're moving through that energy, that interaction. And every interaction is a relationship just the way the world was made. Years ago, there was a value system that we taught to our kids and to, and oh, this goes back so many years. But what you say or don't say, what you do or don't do, not only affects you, but the people, places, and things around you. We live in an individualistic society, one that teaches us about compartmentalization, that you are an individual and that's the most important thing and you're not part of the group per se, but yet then they try to force us in the group. Look at America's political system. Right. There are mul multiple parties, but there's only two dominant ones. And to be able to vote in the preliminaries, I have to declare myself one side or the other. And I don't do that. I won't do that. So there's a lot of things that I choose not to be involved in because I will not be labeled because I can think for myself. What I take from concept three, basically, is that replacing self-judgment with, again, self-compassion is the mm -hmm. way. Yeah, it's the, really the way to solve most of our, our, our internal problems, right? Issues. Right. Concept four You say, no roses is largely caused by the view we take of unfortunate conditions. Neurosis is a form of confusion. It is a way for us to stay stuck. 
it's a way for us to feel comfortable in thinking that we know, but when it when we are shown, I should say, something different, it creates a form of dissonance, of confusion for us. And that's a form of neurosis. Karen Horney, who wrote, what, 50 years ago, said that everybody is a little bit neurotic. Neurosis is natural. And over the years, I've seen that things happen that we can't fathom. Our brain freezes up. We just can't comprehend what we just saw in front of us. And we lock up. We freeze. Every human individual has done at one time or more in their life. That's a form of neurosis. It scares us to the point that we don't know which way is up. That's a form of neurosis. Due to my life, due to my being the way I was raised in, in the military, because of a lot of the experiences in my life, I can watch something happen that would freak anybody out. I was in a situation where I had been working with this person for four, four and a half hours. They were standing on a bridge on an overpass. And inside, I felt things were going pretty good. And we were right on the brink of that person stepping back away from the edge of the bridge. And that person jumped. Okay. There, I had a form of neurosis for a number of hours. It was hard for me to fathom that a person that had made a little bit of progress in our discussions would go ahead and do it, complete the act. Now, my wife has never had that experience. So if she saw something like that, she would be more affected and her brain would be having a hard time disseminating what just happened. That's a form of neurosis. In 2001, the trade towers in New York City had planes flown into them. There were hundreds of thousands of people in this United States that refused to fly. Right. Most of them, thankfully, got over that. That's a form of neurosis. It's temporary, it's fleeting, but it does have an effect. And there is ways to get through with it. Their rationality, their reality has been so shattered by something that it created a form of neurosis. And we all have them now and then. Right. It's okay because we can recover. There's a movie called Thin Red Line that was produced and released six months after Saving Private Ryan. And it showed in that movie where people that, that tended to be a little bit more simple-minded, not as super intelligent as many of the others, did better in war situations and being involved in very disastrous and horrific situations. And in that movie, you also saw people that were very rational, very logical, very intelligent people, could think through situations and see them in a larger perspective than others could, that became very weeping, became very unusable. They were basically basket cases. And when you've been in situations where you've seen some horrific things, uh, whether it be multiple car accidents with severe injuries and deaths or whatever, I have seen very well, very well respected people 
end up losing it and not being able to handle it. Not because they're not intelligent, but their brains cannot fathom what they've just seen. Right. So what do you think it's happening? Like, what would be the difference between you and your wife in that case of you being affected less by that specific situation you mentioned? One, I think it comes back to how safe do we feel in our own skin and with our own intelligence, uh, our own lives. I think it also comes to a form of acceptance that we will never know everything and cannot know everything. And not everything is going to have an answer that we come up against. Mm -hmm. I think recognizing those things can reduce a lot of the trauma that all of us experience in one form or another. I think a lot of our upbringing and our background helps But I can go back and see many of my friends, police officers, paramedics like I was, ER doctors that live in it so constantly, we become callous. We lose the capacity to, in a sense, feel. That stuff is just normal for us to see and be aware of. And it takes a while to regain that back from us, to regain the humanity of it. Uh, it took about three to four years after I quit being in the medical field as a paramedic to come back to a sense of normal. That is like being desensitized, I think it might be the word. Yes, yes. Which takes That's training in a way <laughs> yeah, to uh, get there. I also, use, I also use the word institutionalized. I see doctors that have been working with the same hospital for 30 years, and they're very desensitized. They're constantly seeing all kind of pain all the time. Same type of patients. People are always trying to get something from them. And after a while, they're very institutionalized to that medical world. And when they're out of the hospital, they have a skewed sense of the world. That will most likely cause suffering to themselves. Yeah. Um, I, I really like the concept safety within Does it have to do with self-reliance and being uh, resilient? We are all resilient. That's another word for adaptability. That's how we were created. We can adjust, adapt, evolve, and that is the resilience that has been built into every human being from the dawn of time to who's coming in the future. My friends that are Native Americans have taught me the concept more than my own culture in that a human individual has four parts, and it's called the circle of hope. And north is the physical, east is the emotional, south is the mental, and west is the spiritual. Now, if you put safety in there, that is safety all the way around in every one of those areas acceptance in every one of those areas and validation in all of those. And that is brought forth to us in the dream catcher, the native dream catcher that we all see around that are mass created is the perfect rendition of that. I don't know anything about the dream catcher. Okay. It is a circle because everything comes back. Yeah. Everything is interconnected. A dream catcher generally has a small stone or something in the middle of the circle. And off of that, 
there was almost like a spider web of thread wrapping around the circle and with you in the center. And that shows the interconnectedness of our world, of our life, of ourselves in the universe. American ideology says we're in a box and you do it this way. I suggest, they suggest, the Bible suggests there is no such thing as a box. Uh, We are connected to every little thing in our world and universe. Physical, emotional, mental, and the spiritual is also involved with all four of those in safety, acceptance, connection, and validation. Well, this is a powerful concept to uh, to apply, yeah. which I understand by being connected to yourself in all of these areas, you ended up feeling and living that connection in the world. Concept five says... Frankly, face a dangerous or fearsome situation, render it non-dangerous. If this is not possible, accept the inevitable. It goes back to deal with what's in front of you and only what's in front of you at that moment in time. And don't try to bring anything else into it. In a sense, face what is in front of you. When you're in a, for example, a car accident. That is what you need to address. You need to address, am I hurt? Do I need medical care? Most people tend to have a bit of neurosis, yet freaked out that this has even happened to them, which is natural. But the first thing is I need to contact my insurance. I need to contact my family. I need to do this. I need to do that. No, you don't. You need to take care of yourself. You need to listen to the police officer or the paramedic or whoever is helping you. And many times, concept five, we create more trauma, if you will, or a higher level of trauma, because we're thinking of so many other things but ourselves. I think the main problem with addressing the moment and addressing ourselves just taking care of ourselves, is that we feel that we need to do something now so we can meet the peaceful or the successful or the happy us or me in the future. So I feel propelled Mm -hmm. to do something now about it. And I think that might be an obstacle, right? That's the obstacle. Yes. The focus of that is an obstacle. It's external. When we're faced with a situation that we're uncomfortable with, or one that is out of our control, to help ourselves regain a sense of control is to follow and do what we're being asked. It slows down our breathing. It slows down our mental. It stops the firestorm in our head because now we're getting more oxygen to the brain so we can think better because we need oxygen to think. And we are now going to be a better person in that future, if we deal what's in front of us now, instead of thinking about the future first, if we take care of ourselves, we're going to walk out of that hospital or we're going to walk out of through the situation with a lot more experience where we have not only helped ourselves, but now we may be able to help other people. Yes. I think this is the concept of firefighters, right? Take a look at the surrounding. Make sure it's safe for you first. 
So you were able to right. help whoever is in need. Police officers get that training. Paramedics get that training. Everything is about a form of observation. When a medical personnel comes to your home, the minute they're out of their vehicle, they are looking at their surroundings. They are observing everything they can possible. What is the front yard area? Are there things in our way? Are there kids' toys in the way? A police officer does the same thing. They take in their environment. The military uses this as well. Doctors use this. They just don't jump in. There's some basics that they do first, like get an RV, IV started or things like that. But they just don't jump in cutting on somebody in the hospital. They start observation. What more information do they need to know? We can do the same thing by helping to work on our perceptions or observations on what is around us, what is going on, what is the best thing for me to do. But then when we figure that part out, which these happen in nanoseconds, you have to follow through with what you just thought. But that takes training. It takes a lot of training for a regular person who has never even thought about the idea. The first thing, and like I think in the situation that it's stressful, I don't want to push away my emotions. I wanted to, like we talked earlier about pain and kind of addressing what what's there. Like if, if it comes with a lot of you know, emotions, the fear in the body responds to mm-hmm. it. I don't want it to take a medicine or I don't want to mm-hmm. sort of trying to stop that. I become a rational person, you know, in, in kind of trying to mm-hmm. sort out the situation, be tough. So how do we balance this? Well, there are some very excellent self-help books that are out there that can help you give these ideas. I suggest everybody at once in their life, but they'll probably do it more often, see a counselor or see a wellness coach that we help to provide the environment that the questions can be asked so they begin to think about it. So it comes to an awareness that they can get better, they can do things better, differently, but better. And we're not asking people to change, radically change. We're giving them the opportunity to modify what they already do and how they do it. Just modify it a little bit so it becomes much more functional to them. And they begin to see the small differences in themselves. That can also happen by a person's role model. Think of somebody you respect. What is it about them that you respect so much? What do they do differently than I do? In this talk that we've had so far, I have not used the word why, have I? Because why is an abstract concept to a human being. It would be like asking you, Valeria, to go outside on a clear night and count the stars and then report to me how many stars were in the sky that. There's no answer. But if we use questions like, Wow, how did that work for you? What other way could you might be able to deal with that? Is it really all that important? Asking them direct thinking questions, they begin to challenge their own thoughts. There's a Native American proverb that 
asks, when was the last time you talked to a tree? <laughs> That's good. Well, when I was asked that by one of my elders on the reservation I was working on, I, of course, being white, being very unintelligent, said, why in the heck would I want to talk to a tree? And Elder Dan inevitably did his normal, I would ask a silly question like that, and he would sit there and not say anything for about 10 to 12 minutes. Finally, he said, when a person talks to a tree long enough, they begin to hear themselves. There have been many neurologists and several psychologists that I respect that have done studies. They've hooked people up to PET scans, PET scans, F scans, CAT scans to look at the activity in the brain. And one of the things that they noticed was that people tended to be, it looked like a firestorm in their brain, very chaotic. Uh, Dr. Amons is another one in the Northwest that has studied this. What they found was if you pose one question that a person has to focus and think on about themselves, they will reduce the firestorm in their brain by 50%. Wow. We overload ourselves. And if somebody, a good friend, a, a family member, a colleague, a like yourself with the people you train with and train, were to say, what do you think that's getting you right now? Or how do you think it's helping? When would be the best time for you to kick it up a notch? You will find them in a very different, presenting in a different way. They're in a different space because they have to now focus on something about themselves. Yes. You're saying a lot of things that they do make a lot of sense to me when it comes to meeting disaster, like face to face. And right. uh, you have to think fast in a way you got to do something about it. At the same time, you've got to control your own emotions. Um, and then you suggested uh, therapy. It's a good um, way of training, right, to meet disaster. So we, we train that with therapists. Also, I like what you said about thinking about the ideal person, like what somebody that you respect would do in that situation. I think, like my case, I think about Jesus Christ, I think about Buddha, and I think about Mahatma Gandhi. I like what you said now about talking to a tree. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, that's the best, actually. I'll practice that one, <laughs> talking to a tree. It's a form of communication with yourself, but it's also a form of communication with the world. And if you're sitting talking to a counselor, a therapist, a pastor, or whoever, or in prayer, talking to Jesus, you begin to hear yourself. You begin to hear some of the words you use because you're more connected with yourself and you're willing to be vulnerable to yourself. Most people nowadays, I find, aren't. They don't want to have any sense of vulnerability, which is a form of emotion. They don't like to hear some of the things that I will say. But the issue is, do we only want to hear what is good for us or do we want to have that holistic approach, which all that mean, holistic means is the whole, yeah. both sides at the same time. There are people out there that are either black or white. There are people out there with her, which are gray and black. If you look at the connectedness of the symbol yin and yang, that's all about connection. You have both sides at the same time. Then there are some people that 
are on the fence all the time because they can see both sides of the fence at the same time. I say awareness, like balance, being in the middle yeah. way, awareness. Just be aware that there are two sides of life, of yourself, of everything, like the opposites. Yeah. We should be aware of them. One single word that brings all of that together is mindfulness. Mindfulness, right. Mindful. And the definition is to be aware. That is a definition of mindfulness. In that, you have meditation. In that, you have exercise. In that, you have nutrition. In that, you have all these other things. Meditation has has a poor context because it was originally taught to Westerners as spiritual, as an Eastern religious act. It's Eastern philosophy. When if you go back to the original word, of meditate, the actual definition is thinking. It is to spend time thinking about one specific thing. There is a point that you can, and the Zen teach it very well, where you can be doing things and almost literally have no thought about it. You have trained the body. You have athletes are this way. Athletes can do the same thing repetitiously over and over and over again. And when you sit down afterwards and you will ask a silly question like, what were you thinking while you were doing that? Or was there a thought process you went through? And they will actually say, I cannot pick up that I was thinking at all. I meditate, but my way of meditating, of understanding it, this exercise, it's actually sort of letting thoughts just pass through me. And right. I don't want to give attention to anyone. If, not that I don't want to. That's right. the idea. Yeah. And that also assists the body in being able to work more harmoniously, what we call homostasis. It allows the body to relax. It allows the body to heal. We also have to recognize that people don't operate with the same definitions. and have the definitive understanding as maybe you do or I do or others do. That's something they have to find on their own. And that's where you and I get to create the environment so they can find it when they're ready. Mm. Timing is so important. Right. There is a, a, the Bible teaches us there's a season for everything. Right. There's a season for planting. There's a season for this. There's a season for that. And coming to a form of acceptance, people can come to us and we can create the most perfect environment in the world, but we can't make them do it. The original philosophy in that was you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink. Yes. How do we know they are not ready? Like The horse doesn't want to drink the water if we kind of intuitively know that the horse is thirsty. <laughs> He's dying of thirst. So yeah. if you understand what I'm trying to say. Right. There's a form of acceptance. For me, it comes from the Bible. For people that are Buddhists, there's a couple writings in the, from Buddha that talk about this. Mahatma Gandhi talked about this. Aristotle, Plato talked about it as well, is that you plant seeds, but you never know when they're going to grow. In the Bible, you plant seeds on the hard soil, they're not going to grow. They're going to burn up. You plant seeds on 
let's say, semi-good soil, and it could it will get choked out by the weeds. Mm. And then you plant seeds in the good soil. You don't know the time and the place that they will grow, but you just know they will. In working with all the people I have worked with and had to make recommendations and observations and reports and testify to them and things of that nature, or advise through consulting on an issue. The aspect of, do I see the fruit? Do I see the application? Most of the time, folks will tell on themselves. I have had many people come in that have probation or parole officers in their lives, and they come in and complain about that they got sanctioned by that person in their lives. And my first question to them is, how did you give them permission to do that? So I ask them to look at their actions that created the situation that that other person could do their job. When we get finished talking, they've been able to recognize the fact how if they had gone a different way or on concept six, the soap taking the easy way out, Mm -hmm. if you will, the easy road, the less road, whatever it may be, actually gave permission for the other parties to do what they did and affect their lives. So continuing to do the old way, the way they've always done it, taking the easy road out actually can be more detrimental because they gave another system, another person, another family, or whatever, another situation, they gave them permission to do what they did. Yes. The idea of planting the seeds, it sounds great in a sense of trying to help others to understand certain Mm -hmm. uh, fundamental truths. Should we kind of be attentive and listen to that voice within of wisdom to know where to plant the seeds or not? Or we just do what we we feel compelled to do and just let go. We just plant the seed wherever we are and just let go, accept whatever grows out of it. Yep. And that's exactly part of the philosophy. Part of the philosophy of living is that people come to you for guidance about physical health, which includes emotional health, nutrition, exercise, those type of things, correct? Yes. They've opened the door. So they've just given you a fertile field to plant the seeds. What I have, and you might say, what I have found works. This avenue or this path can be a little harder, but I find more people are successful with it. And you give them the opportunity, you respect them, you honor them Mm. by giving them the choices. Which way do they want to go? Or what option would they like to choose? They have just given you that field the fertileness, and you get to plant the seeds. Now, once they leave your studio, once they leave whatever, and you have no, you don't have contact till the next time you see them, all that you've done is no longer yours. You have no responsibility for it. Whose responsibility is it? Now, if we live our lives that way, we take, reduce the stress, we reduce the ownership of things that we don't have ownership over, 
It's the same thing in communication. People come to me or I'm doing a psychological assessment for them. And I ask the questions and they'll say, you know, maybe at the end or, well, is there any ideas you can give me to help me? And generally I do. But once I make a suggestion uh, recommendation, it's no longer mine. They have to decide. That's how we honor them of how they use it, where they use it, when they use it, and the situation they use it in. It's not ours. I don't know when they will. It's just like raising kids. As a parent, I have five kids and three with five children and three grandchildren. I've done the best I could to, to share with them things in my life or things in their lives or things that might help them. So as a parent, I need to be safe, accepting, connecting, and validating for them too. I get phone calls back from my kids that say, Dad, you were right. In the home, it's great. But when they walk out that door, get on that school bus or go to a youth group or whatever, I have no control over them. But I can pray that what I've shared with them will help them make a better decision. I like that. I like that a lot. It's harder to do at a personal level with somebody yeah. you care, somebody you love, and you wanted them to sort of listen to us, right? In the professional situation, I can I can understand sort of letting go of the results. You just plant the seed and, and you just let go. But when you have a son, like you have kids and grandchildren, how mm-hmm. do you plant that seed and let go of it? It's not an easy thing to do, right? No, it isn't. It's recognizing the fact that there's so much power and control in being a professional and being a parent and being a son and being a husband and being a wife or whatever. I don't need to tell them how to live their lives. One of the issues we have in treatment today in our systems is that we keep telling people the same thing every time. They already know what they know and they already know how to do it. They struggle with how to apply it. As a parent, am I a safe person? Have I created a safe relationship, parent and child relationship? Any of my children, and even children that aren't mine, but consider me like a father figure, can come to me and talk to me about anything, no matter what it is, and I'm safe. Most parents, in my opinion, don't think about things that way. Can I accept them where they're at, their irrational, their rationality, they're 16 years old, um, their brains aren't fully developed till almost age 25, and the last section of the brain to fully develop is the frontal lobe, which is the logic center, the executive functioning skills. Can I connect with them? Hmm, okay, I'm 60 years old. I'm not sure I can understand about this addiction to video games. So how do I help them learn to teach me? How do I connect? Where do I fit in? How do I fit? In? And how can I validate them, show them the love as a person as they are and still not agree with the way they're thinking or how they're thinking about it? Yes. But we have a tendency in Western world to tell people everything they need to do. My parents, my families. My clients, my patients have all taught me one very big thing, and that is they talk about me, they talk to me, 
They talk around me. They talk behind my back. They tell me what to think, when to think, how to think it, what color to think it in, how high to jump and think at the same time, and when to do it. They never talk with me. What would you do if a 16-year-old young lady, not your child, comes to you, but you're working with their parents, and says, I'm scared to go to my mom and dad and tell them something? Well, you should be able to go tell them. They're your parents. You have to go tell them. That's a lot of the response they're going to get. And it shuts them down. I wouldn't like to be in that position right now. How are you doing with that? What would you like to do different? Who do you think it would be? If it's not your parents, who's the closest person that you trust to maybe share it with? Now, you haven't asked them to tell you, but you're creating a dialogue, a communication Because communication is key to everything you and I do and everything we do in the world. The difficulty is we have developed into a society that listens to give an answer rather than listen to help or to understand. I want people to think for themselves. I don't want people to not so be not so dependent on others for the answers. And I don't mean that in a negative way. We're all dependent on others. My relationship with my wife, I'm very dependent. Uh, When she has to travel for business, is gone for a week at a time or more, I miss her. There's a piece of me that's missing. When my son calls, one of my sons calls me up from where he lives and says, Dad, I'm struggling, my heart goes out to him. Well, okay, son, how do you think I can help? I don't assume that I have the answer for everything in the world or life. But I don't want to give anybody else the answer to everything because that promotes a sense of ownership. If you tell somebody, advise somebody, and tell somebody what and how to do something and it doesn't work out, they're going to be upset with you and you're going to be thinking, well, they didn't do it the right way. Yes. If they just done it my way. Right. Well, the difficulty is they're not you. They can't do it. Uh, I'm going to take a little chance here and be vulnerable. I'm working on my 39th year in recovery. When I was a young man, I had an issue with drugs, sports drugs, mainly. That's my life. And that's just a part of my history that I have changed the history to be a strength rather than a weakness. Do I have an understanding of other people with the same issues. No, not really. I can relate to it because I've been there and done some of the things, but I can't fully understand them because I'm not them. There are similarities in our story, but I didn't do it their way. I didn't use IV drugs, and they may have. There's so many differences. So I can't fully understand another person, but I can relate to some of the circumstances. When I have that attitude, it takes a lot of that responsibility and control and power away from me. doesn't mean I can't fall into that at some point in my life or end up trying to take power when I shouldn't or control when I shouldn't because I'm human. But it keeps me from falling back in those traps, which is exactly what Gandhi taught, exactly what all the philosophies in the Bible teaches We are connected and to be in relationship with everybody and everything around us. But how we do it, how we present, 
is very different than what the world we have today is. Yes. I go back to references. I think this is the what spirituality really is, just being, living mm-hmm. whatever you believe in. I lost track of the concepts number-wise, but going back, so we, I stopped at number five. Number six, um, so concept six, we talked about, but I didn't mention. It's just uh, the so-called easy way is usually much harder in the long run. Um, seven, yes. we just talked about Two, we, we just explained it to me. Concept seven, uh, take the risk of thinking and acting less dependently. Concept eight, do well rather than always need to do well. Accept yourself as a quiet, imperfect creature who has general human limitations and specific tendencies to make mistakes or be wrong. We live in a society that teaches being wrong is a negative thing. And it really isn't because if you're not wrong now and then you don't learn or you don't grow. The issue there also comes to, I think I sent it to you, called the five agreements. Those come from Dr. Ruiz, who studied Mayan and Inca traditions in South America and developed the four agreements and then the five agreements. And I took his basis his foundation, and wrote it to more reality. This comes up to the point that always do your best. One of the agreements you can make with yourself for your life is always do your best. Recognizing that your best is going to change as you heal and grow and recover. The timing of doing your best is different every day of your life. And doing your best provides you the opportunity to grow even further because you learn things. If you're, obser- if you're an observer, you will learn things that, oh, I can go this direction and it will actually enhance or improve. So doing your best is about being willing to learn, being open to learn. Yes, being open to learn. It's hard also for us to do because a lot of times we just, we're just so attached to our own beliefs, and that they make us feel safe. But that also sets us up when we feel that safe. It sets us up for things to happen to us because we lose our awareness when we think we're too safe. Yes, and we think we know it all. We, we are just, yeah, in mm-hmm. life is constantly changing. So sooner or later, we'll find out that this is just natural. Concept nine, learn from your past experiences, but do not be overly attached to or prejudiced by them. In the Sanskrit text, there is a proverb that says, yesterday is but a memory. The future, tomorrow, is but a vision. Today is a gift, and it's how it is lived well. There is a tendency, especially in Western culture, to hold people's pasts against them. In marriage counseling, relationship counseling, I have seen so many people that can pull what I call the tally book out of their pocket, and they can recite by memory all of the things that the other person has done, what they think is wrong. And they will use it to change another person. So that's external. Our past experiences are learning tools. Maybe I shouldn't drive at 85 miles an hour and I won't lose control of the car and I won't wreck another car. 
maybe I need to modify how much lead is in my shoe on the accelerator. You know, I trusted that person and it cost me this, that, or the other thing. Ah, that type of situation comes up again. How do I protect myself from getting taken for a ride? We've all had been taken advantage of by others. That learning tool, I think, is best used for understanding our boundaries. How did we get sucked in and where's that boundary to say this is not good for me or it sounds too good? I don't think it's real. All experience is a learning tool if you allow it. If you're willing, there's that operative word, willing to examine it and what can you gain from it. That's what that concept is about. Yes. I like that every experience uh, can be a learning tool. Absolutely. A lot of times, most of us are not ready, like you know, we discussed before. The example of the horse, you know, we know the horse is thirsty, but how come? You know, we're giving right. him water, but he's not drinking. So uh, this is a mystery, I think. This is where it's hard to, uh, to understand why people won't apply this. I mean, I would mm-hmm. say a law for well-being. Well, maybe in in the horse analogy, we also, knowledge is king there. The horse was designed to also know what is dangerous for them. So the reason they're not drinking is because that water may be brackish or poisoned because Mm. horses smell everything before, especially water, before they drink. Or maybe the horse doesn't trust the person who is bringing him to the water. And maybe there's uh, a trust issue there, too. Now, it has nothing to do with the water, but who is guiding him or her? Right. Or the horse, I'm sorry. I, you know, I had never thought of it that way. But yeah. God developed the horse and animals with senses to know what is not good. Now, sometimes they don't always work, like finding a horse that's maybe eaten some hemlock, which is dangerous for horses, that was covered over by some other weeds or brush or whatever. But sometimes if we watch nature, if we watch the horses, if we do things like that, we will actually learn that it's not good. And it will, it will harm us if we follow through with it. So learning to having some knowledge about the world around us can help reduce that possibility. Yes. Concept 10, the world is full of probabilities and chances. We can still enjoy life despite of not having perfect control over things. We were given this earth to help manage it, not to control it. But human nature has taken that over to where we control everything or attempt or believe We control everything, which if we look at the world, we can't. An example, most recent example here in Alaska was end of November last year, we had a major earthquake and there was a lot of damage. It was a 7.2 on the Richter scale, which means there's going to be some damage. We've had a number of aftershocks. In fact, we had a small aftershock this morning. We're not in control of when those things happen. We try to control time. We can't control time. It's a constant. It's always moving. The world we live in has constant probabilities and possibilities. 
And are we aware enough to be able to see those possibilities and probabilities? Probabilities are generally used in science and physics and quantum mechanics and studies in that arena. But actually, if, for example, we've just been getting a lot of snow, there's six inches of new snow on the ground on top of a layer of ice. So the probability that somebody is going to slide when they put on the brakes too heavily is a reality. If they are going too fast, they're going to lose control. That probability. Now, there are also possibilities in the world. The possibilities are the ones that we can use to, as I see it, heal, grow, and recover. Yet also to grow in our knowledge of how to be that positive influence on somebody else just by being there, by the way we live. Those probabilities and possibilities are reality. They're not a space-time continuum or a space warp or a string theory of the universe. They're reality. But are we willing to see them? I think the problem there is there's a lot of fear. So we we have mm-hmm. to control and that in, ended up becoming a, a negative thing, which could become mm-hmm. an addiction. But do you think that this desire of, of control, this attachment to control, it's actually lack of trust, faith? In themselves, mm-hmm. in the systems that we live in, yeah. the government, the president, the whatever, the government, uh, the answer is yes. But I think it, yet, I think at the core, is they have a lack of faith and belief in themselves. We create by the systems that, and the media especially, we create this attitude of what you have, what you are, is not good enough. We, in the psychology world, we talk about body dysmorphic, where their body will never be what it's supposed to be. Uh, eating disorders have their basis from the aspect that I have to look like that size minus double zero model to be noticed, or I have to be a certain shape. Plastic surgeons feed off that, literally feed off. True. A person with this trust and faith in herself, himself, how can she or he sort of adapt and navigate in a society that is actually doing the opposite. Yes, by purposing to recognize being aware of the things that are coming at us. You know, the furniture I have in my house, the books I have, whether they're here or in storage or at the office, are part of who I am, but they're just material things. I drive a oh my gosh, it's a 2006 vehicle, and I'm comfortably fine with it. But And what when they're throwing the message on the TV of, well, you need this new car, you need this new couch, you need to go here, you need to do this, the tummy tucks, the whatever they're promoting nowadays, recognize I don't have to accept what they're saying. I'm comfortable where I'm at and with what I have. There's a philosophy in life that we don't teach anymore, and it's values-based, but it's more important to want what you already have 
than to get what you want. So we create clutter. Uh, for example, my wife and I moved up here in 2011. We brought almost 14,000 pounds of household goods, materials, and because and she needed a boost in her career. So I, I quit what I was doing, and we moved to another state. And before we left, we started looking at what we really have. What do we really use? What do we really need? And so we moved to Montana with only about 9,000 pounds of stuff. We moved back from Montana to Alaska two years later because we missed Alaska so much. And we came back with 6,800 pounds. In the last place we lived, which was Fairbanks, we lived in a thousand square feet, beautiful little home. And we had Two of our children come up and visit us for the summer. We did wonderful. We had a great time, and a 1,000 square feet was more than we needed. So it's a change in attitude. It's a change in belief of what you actually need to live. My wife and I were just talking about the other day if we move back to where all our family is. We would have a hard time finding a house now because all the houses are 10 times bigger than we actually need. So many times it's living your life in and around all the other life, but recognizing what is good and not so good for you and feeling good about it. Yes. Being able to discern, to say no to things that right. we don't need uh, in order to feel enriched. I think that comes right. from within, like we have been talking. Concept 11, you say... We tend to be happiest when we are vitally absorbed in creative pursuits or when we are devoting ourselves to people or projects outside ourselves. We all need something separate of what we do on a daily basis. We have a need in humanity to have a purpose. For many people, that purpose is maybe opening their home and taking in foster children for whatever time they're allowed to. For some, it could be offering their time at soup kitchens or feeding the homeless. Professionally, it is critical for our own self-care to have something that we can do, uh, manage, help with, that is totally different than what we do for a living. For me, my self-care project has been pretty much either riding my road bike or my photography. And that has turned into a professional business. And I get to see the world from multiple different perspectives, which is wonderful for me. My wife and I also serve a ministry of feeding the homeless and street people, mainly children, in Kampala, Uganda. I'm also on the board of directors of a safari group over in Uganda. We all need things that tap our creative juices, if you will. It could be volunteering at a flower shop for flower arranging. It could be at the church. It could be being a Sunday school teacher. It can be anything. But all humans have a need to have a purpose in their life. So concept 12, this is the last one. We have real control over our destructive emotions if we choose to work 
at changing the hypotheses and paradigms which we often employ to create them. We have so much power and control to manage our emotions, to change our perceptions, to look at things differently. One of the agreements in the five agreements I mentioned a little while ago says, do not take things personally. It is not all about you. It could be about what you've done, but it's not about who you are as a person. Many of our destructive emotions are because we think we've been slighted, that that person looked at me the wrong way. Or what is that person doing with that other cultural person? Or our perceptions, our beliefs that we aren't, don't think are important to anybody else but ourselves help to create destructive emotions. And many times, it's like today, our culture is you can't say how you feel or believe without offending somebody else. That's a problem. And it's creating more problems in our culture. It's creating more divisions. And as God said in the word, a house divided cannot stand. Yes. Well said. I have two last questions for you. As of today, uh, Reverend Mark, what are three things about life you know for sure? The faith that I have is a faith that everybody else can have and they can live it in their way. That life is worth living with an open eye and an open heart and a willingness to learn. And that I am happy to have survived myself. <laughs> mm-hmm for the last 60 years, and I'm looking for another 60 years. And that, I can hang my hat on. Yes. Where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, future projects? (laughs) Um, I have a page on Facebook that I post fairly frequently on of sayings of anecdotes, of writings on, as well as my photography. That's pretty much my main medium. I do have a website through Zenfolio that people can look at based on photography and the work there. And I'm also on LinkedIn. I post a couple times a month on LinkedIn. It's a professional site. Many of my friends are there, people I've associated with it over the years and who have taught me. So those are the places that most people can find, or they can just email me and I'll send them, see if I have what they're looking for and send them a little bit of information. So that's how I work. Sounds great. I'll have the links to your uh, websites and pages on my website. Okay. Thank you so much for this conversation, Reverend Mark. It was wonderful and very much enlightening. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Hope to talk with you again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Reverend Mark Baisden, please visit his website, baisdenphotography.zenfolio.com. To learn about future conversations, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Brought to you by Infinity Greens, health-enhancing superfoods that I use and have been great for for the health benefits I feel and I see every day. 
plant-based, high-quality protein, essential vitamins and minerals that make a real difference in our health. It is my joy to introduce you to your new best friend, infinitygreens.com. Thank you again and bye for now.